Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When we think about the future, our minds turn almost effortlessly to bad things. Maybe it's the climate problem or the AI apocalypse or political chaos. The list goes on and on. Dystopianism has always been an easy game to play. And there's something useful about imagining how badly things might go if we don't deal with our issues now. If nothing else, it's a check against inaction. But why don't we spend more time imagining a better future? If imagining the worst case scenario is a useful exercise, then imagining the best case scenario must also be useful and for the same reasons. So why does this seem so much harder to do? I'm Sean Elliott, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Kristen Godsey. She's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the new book, Everyday Utopia, what 2,000 years of wild experiments can teach us about the good life. During the early days of the pandemic, Kristen researched different utopian experiments over the last two centuries to see what we might learn from them. For her, it's a mistake to use terms like utopian and unrealistic interchangeably. Because we made the world and we can always remake it. There are limits, of course, but there are also infinite possibilities. The pandemic was instructive in this way. It forced so many of us to do what previously seemed far-fetched, like pooling our resources together or working from home or forming makeshift parenting pods to help with childcare. All of this adaptation was a reminder of how flimsy our social arrangements are and how quickly we can reorder them. And for Godsey, it was a glimpse of our capacity to truly reimagine our lives. What does utopian actually mean to you, if not unrealistic or overly aspirational or pie in the sky or, you know, pick your phrase? 
Yeah, so I actually want to kind of claim that word as it's okay for utopian to be pie in the sky. You know, in business, in academia, in science, there's this concept of blue sky thinking. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but blue sky thinking, right? You get a bunch of really smart people in a room, like think tank sort of situation. You present them with a problem, and then they come up with the wildest solutions they can think of. And in the process, ideas are generated. And sometimes those solutions are just utterly patently absurd. But sometimes they can actually lead to opening our mind and thinking creatively. And so one of the things that really strikes me about sort of contemporary futuristic kinds of writing, particularly in the world of science and business and industry, is that Blue sky thinking is a good thing when it makes us money or it solves like a tricky scientific problem that we have. But when we are talking about our social systems or our private lives, the way we organize our families and our relationships, blue sky thinking is sort of off the table. We're very conservative. We tend to have this thing that social psychologists will call status quo bias. We don't want to challenge the way things are done because there are all sorts of ways in which things could get worse. So I think that utopia as a concept is, you know, Thomas More played on this wonderful ambiguity. The way that it's spelled, utopia with a U, literally means a no place or nowhere. But if you switch out the U for an EU, it means a good place, utopia, or, you know, a, a good where, like a place that is better than where we are right now. And that ambiguity is wonderfully intentional. And I think that utopian thinking is a necessary ingredient of human flexibility, creativity, and ultimately adaptability. When environmental or climatic or social, economic, or political situations start changing, it's often what I like to call the utopian 1%. There's always this sort of 1% of people out there on the margins of our societies who are living their lives in a very different way. And it's from them that we get ideas about how we can start to make changes in our daily lives that will make our lives better. And I think I don't want to shy away from the word utopian. I want utopian to stand for what it is, which is broadening out what some people call the Overton window is extreme as far as you can go to that utopian horizon. Because it's in walking back from that horizon often that we are able to come up with new ways of thinking and being and living and organizing ourselves in the world. The book actually opens, interestingly, with the story of Pythagoras, who listeners will know as the triangle guy. But you call him the great-grandfather of utopian thinking. Is he really? Did Pythagoras create what we've come to think of as the modern-day commune or something like that? So, you know, we have some really interesting evidence from a philosopher called Iambiclus who wrote this book called The Life of Pythagoras. And so we have some sense of how these Pythagoreans were living. And they left mainland Greece because they were unhappy with the status quo, the way that things were being organized. And they settled in a place that is now in southern Italy called Croton. And they basically decided to live in a commune, owning all of their property in common, so that they could spend all their time exploring the mysteries of mathematics and the universe. Among them, they had this phrase, and I'm going to butcher the ancient Greek, but it's roughly koinata na philon, which literally means among friends, all things in common. And we also know from Iambiclus that the way of life of the Pythagoreans was so strange to the ancient Greeks and so 
kind of radically different, but also curious and compelling, that when Plato in 375 BC goes to write the Republic and he's imagining his ideal city of Callipolis, we know from Iambiclus that he used the Pythagorean way of life as a model. So there's this interesting way in which, at least in the Western tradition, there is this sort of way in which you can think of Pythagoras as the great-great-grandfather of certain kind of utopian ways of being in the world. Well, speaking of critiquing the status quo, a book like this, a book about alternative ways of living, is obviously animated in some way by a critique of the present order. How would you sum up that critique? And that's a big question, I know. So feel free to take it wherever you want. I just want the audience to have a sense of where you're coming from and what it is you're reacting against. Yeah, absolutely. This is a very much kind of post-pandemic book in the sense that it was initially animated by a lot of the isolation and loneliness and general discombobulation that people felt during the pandemic. And the ways in which we realized that our family structure, so what I describe in the book as a monogamous pair, generally heterosexual, living together and providing exclusive biparental care to their own biological offspring in a single family home surrounded by hordes of their own privately owned stuff. That was That's the model that we have. That's the model that is quite hegemonic in the United States for many people. And it's the model that made the pandemic so difficult. So almost immediately, people who had little kids or had families, they, they rushed out to form pandemic pods. They tried mutual aid experiments, and they did everything they possibly could to create communities of support, which shows you that the way that we live normally is somewhat problematic. And so The real arc of the book is to go through every piece of that formula. So the the nuclear family, the exclusive biparental care, the way we raise our children in these isolated single-family homes away from other children, our relationship to property and the physical built environment within which we dwell, within which we warehouse ourselves when we're raising our families— All of these different pieces of the way we organize our private lives are fairly recent inventions, and they are, you know, conventions that are eminently changeable. And when we look out across the historical record and when we look cross-culturally, we can see that there have been multiple ways of organizing our family lives depending on different external factors. And that, as I said, Human beings are kind of uniquely creative, flexible, and adaptable. And our family forms and our mating practices are also uniquely creative, flexible, and adaptable. And so the critique here is that too many of us, I think, today are fixed in our idea of what a family is supposed to look like, where the boundaries of those families end and begin, how we form families, how we then insert those families into dwellings, into boxes within which they live out their familial lives, and the ways in which those families then interact with other families. All of those things are preconditioned by certain set cultural norms that I think are very anachronistic for the world that we are going to be living in in the 21st century. And this has to do with the climate crisis. This has to do with isolation and loneliness. 
This has to do with extreme levels of inequality. And this just basically has to do with a change in our attitude towards the natural environment. We're going from an era where people believed that the Earth's resources were abundant and sort of never-ending. And we are now really having to come to grips with the idea that the Earth's resources are not abundant and that unlimited economic growth is not necessarily desirable. Why is it so difficult to imagine living in a very different world? That's coming up after a quick break. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. One of the things that makes these experiments feel like such distant possibilities, certainly for the mainstream at least, is that they really are revolutionary in the most concrete, intimate way. Because as you're saying, we're talking about transforming not just our, our social and political lives, but our private lives. And this is something you say a lot of people fail to appreciate. Why do you think that is? Why are so many people so eager to critique our economic system, but much less interested in what might be, as you put it in the book, a miss in our private lives? So, you know, there are a lot of really interesting perspectives on this question. I think that people do feel that their private lives are under much closer scrutiny, for instance, 
personally then you know you can talk about economic systems you can talk about politics and it's not necessarily about you and the people that you love and the people that you're sharing your resources with and maybe what your parents think of you or what your kids think of you or what your extended kin networks think of you so there's this way in which our private life is this place of incredible expectation around unconditional love care and support and and I want to really stop and recognize that. Like, I'm not saying that family is bad. Actually, I'm saying that family is really good and that we should just expand our definition of what family is. So especially, I think, for communities of color and for immigrant communities, the family is an incredibly safe space where you get support and you get unconditional love, you know, theoretically. But there's this fear that I think is a very primal fear that people have, that if you started to change anything about the relationship and the way that those relationships come about and the way they get maintained and sustained over time, that the whole thing could fall apart and that we will all end up being unloved and alone. And we are so afraid on a very visceral level of being unloved and alone. And given that the family is this place where in a very cruel hostile environment, we often get company and support and emotional care. It's it's really hard for us to um, to shake that up in our personal lives. I think many people do it. They're very brave. And it takes a leap of faith. And ultimately, what I argue in the book is we'll actually be more loved and in a greater level of community if we expand our notion of what family life is. The other part of this argument is the much more sort of radical part of the argument, which is that I think that our family form, as it is currently instantiated for most people in particularly the United States, but I would say the global north more broadly, I'm speaking to you right now from Germany and similar set of circumstances here in Germany, is that our form of the family upholds a particular kind of political and economic system with high levels of inequality, where the nuclear family and this exclusive biparental care in our own privately owned homes with our stuff actually facilitates the intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege, largely from fathers to their legitimate sons. And that this model was a particular adaptation to plow agriculture, where you didn't want to divide agricultural estates, and then you get the institution of primogenitor or ultimogenitor, where either the first son or the last son inherits everything, so you don't have to divide the estates. There's all sorts of really interesting evolutionary anthropological reasons, as well as historical reasons, why we have the particular family form that we do. But the key thing is that the way we do family really underpins a particular political and economic way of being in the world. And so if you critique the family... If you try to challenge the family in any way, you really are, in fact, fundamentally already challenging the economic and political and social system. And so then people get really defensive, right? So you get get a lot of resistance. So there's this internal psychological fear of being unloved and alone. And then there's this external way in which people who benefit from the current distribution of resources that our political and economic systems provide are not going to look very kindly at innovations in the family which are going to upset the status quo. I suppose one of the conservative reactions against this sort of change or thinking is that on the one hand, you're, you're right. 
the way we live now is a historical aberration. This is not how humans have lived for most of our history. The world could have turned out very differently. Human beings are plastic, not infinitely plastic, I would say, but, but plastic to a degree. And yet, this is where we are. This is how our society evolved and our institutions and even our psyches in lots of ways have adapted to it. And that's not something you can easily overturn, or at least not too quickly. Does that sort of instinct or that sort of objection worry you or give you any pause at all? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> simple answer, no. But what I want to say is that I respect the hesitation there, right? I understand where it's coming from, right? Because I'm sympathetic to this fear that people have that if you upset the status quo somehow, that like the whole thing will fall apart. But this comes back to, again, this sort of evolutionary anthropology of the family and a set of recent studies where it's becoming increasingly clear that our mating practices are separable from our child-rearing practices. Like, in the contemporary way that we imagine the family, we think of the biparental model of exclusive care for biological children as the appropriate container for childbearing, right? So that there's a romantic couple, usually it's a romantic couple, and that romantic couple then pairs off, has kids, and raises those kids exclusively with their biparental care without much provisioning or support from outside of that biparental unit. Well, that's just not really how human beings evolutionarily evolved to raise children. So we are pair bonders. There's very good evidence that we tend to form pairs. We tend to have strong attachments. That doesn't necessarily mean they're heterosexual. That doesn't even necessarily mean that they're monogamous. But we do tend to be pair bonders. We even see in cenobitic monastic communities, when you have groups of monks or nuns who are taking in children, often, you know, orphans, and they're raising those children collectively, even there will be sort of pairs that form that sort of become not couples in a romantic sense, but pairs. We're pair bonders. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the pair or the pair bond is the appropriate container for child rearing. So that's the first thing that I would say is that any argument that human beings are naturally one way or the other or that we've evolved in a particular way because of a particular set of environmental or climatic or political circumstances, that's not true. Like, we are so flexible. And that's true for both parts of this, for the child-rearing part of it and for the mating practices part of it. So Starkweather and Hames had a great article on the prevalence of polyandry, which is where you have many husbands for one wife. So you have fraternal polyandry, which is where brothers marry one woman, and then you have non-fraternal polyandry, which is where a group of men, either formally or informally, have relationships with one woman, and then they have this thing called partible paternity. And where this evolves, it's often when you have high male mortality or high male absenteeism. And this is like a, a way in which you can correct for a sex ratio imbalance. It's often also the case that where there's high levels of female infanticide, you have many more men than you have women in a population. And so people will just accept sort of polyandrous relations. When the sex ratio gets corrected, the polyandry will kind of dissipate and people will tend to be more polygynous or monogamous. In areas of classical polyandry, so this is very high-altitude places in Tibet, for instance, where the environment is very resource-poor, and in the absence of natural forms of birth control, it turns out that 
polyandry will also limit the population. So that's an interesting adaption to make sure that areas which are resource poor do not get overpopulated. And finally, we also see polyandry in places where if the father were to divide the estate, it would be less productive as agricultural land. And so rather than instituting primogeniture, where the oldest son gets all the land, sometimes these societies will have polyandry, where all the brothers marry one woman, and then they raise all their kids in common, and that keeps the estate together. So the thing about all of these examples of polyandry, which is you know not that prevalent, but it's much more prevalent than we would expect it to be, is that it changes our mating practices and our child-rearing practices just change in relation to all sorts of external factors. And I think that that's the same with us, right? We are fixed in a particular model right now, but if certain external factors were to change or if we wanted to change certain external factors, we could change our family lives, the way we're organizing our love and care and support because we live in a society right now with high levels of loneliness and isolation and with a real care deficit. And so I think we need to think creatively the way we did during the pandemic about reorganizing our domestic lives to make them more capacious and more supportive and more loving in the absence, if that's the case, of any sort of state efforts to do things like expand, you know, universal child care or provide kinds of support for the elderly and so on and so forth. It is worthwhile, as you do in the book, I think, to remember how easily things that seem permanent or fixed can change almost overnight. Now, sometimes, maybe even often, it's because those changes are forced, like during the pandemic, where suddenly the state just starts giving out basically universal basic income you know, overnight. And right. you know, parents are forming these pandemic pods, as you were saying, where they're sharing childcare and homeschooling responsibilities. That doesn't prove these are things we should do, but it does prove that we can do them. And there's there's a lesson there. And I just wanted to say that before we get into some of the concretes. Yeah. And it's really worth emphasizing because I want, you know, there, I think there are two critiques of the book. One that I've heard and that I think I want to address head on. One is somehow that I'm saying that all the different examples that I give in the book are somehow models for us to emulate. And that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is they can each teach us different things about how People have in the past reorganized their domestic lives in certain ways for certain reasons, and that we could learn from those things. So it's not like I'm like post facto exonerating all these communities for the stupid mistakes they made, of which some of them made really stupid mistakes and they didn't last forever. Some lasted a lot longer and had different reasons, and some were like very forcibly crushed by the state because they were so outside of the mainstream that mainstream society just needed to eradicate them. But then the second thing is that somehow... By talking about the ways that utopian communities have organized their private lives differently, that I'm advocating for some kind of state intervention. And in fact, the whole point of this book is to say, in the absence of state interventions, what can we do? So it's really weird to have people say, oh, well, you know, you're just talking about socialism, when I'm actually not at all talking about socialism. I'm saying that if you can't do these sort of more state-level kind of policies from the top down— what are the options still available to us from the bottom up? Well, one of the things that people have done, I guess, from Pythagoras <laughs> onward, I'm sure in many cases before that, is raising kids as public goods or raising kids in common. You have a whole chapter on this in the book. And, you know, Plato, who you mentioned earlier, famously makes the case in 
the Republic for raising kids in common. And he makes an interesting and maybe even correct case that this is the only way to ensure that citizens remain truly committed to the good of the society. But, you know, I can just say, and I know a lot of other people feel this way, there's no way in hell I would ever want to live like that. Uh, I don't want to raise my kids in common. And that may just be a failure of imagination on my part. And we'll get more into that later. But I also don't know any other parent that I think would be you know, super pumped about doing that either. So uh, I'm sure you encounter just that initial kind of, wait, what? Yes. How do you unpack that? What does it mean to raise kids really uh, in common in that way? And, and what do you think we can learn from that kind of arrangement, even if you know, we don't need to wholly endorse it, but how can we apply some of the, the lessons of that to the society that we have now? So this is precisely where you have like the utopian extreme being Plato's vision of total common childcare so that parents don't even know their children, children don't even know their parents, right? That's the extreme. And then you just like walk it all the way back to something that people understand, like let your kids spend more time with their grandparents. Let your kids spend more time with other loving adults in your community. They might be your neighbors. They might be your college friends. They might be your colleagues at work. You know, in a lot of religious traditions, there are these things called godparents, right? Padrinos. This idea that you have a, a couple that is sort of a backup plan for you in case you and your partner die. There's this way in which religious traditions try to instantiate another two adults in, in the lives of children so that they're surrounded by a loving community of adults. Now, you can start by saying, okay, I'm not going to raise my children in common. I'm a mom too. I understand exactly that sort of, especially when your kids are sort of young and vulnerable and they're, you're super overprotective of them and the world is this big, bad, scary place, and you want to make sure that they get all the love and attention and resources that they need to thrive. And let's face it, for a lot of us, other children are competitors, not only for resources, but for our attention. Anybody who grew up in a really big family will know this, right? But if you think about the evolutionary anthropology of the family, we've always been these cooperative breeders. Older siblings have always played a role in raising young children. They're born essentially premature. They're so close together that uh, mothers often, even just by parental care, is not enough to provision the calories. Again, this is depending on geographic circumstances. So there's this way in which we've always relied on broader networks of both kin, in this case, grandmothers, older siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, and so on and so forth, and non-kin, your godparents, maybe a nun or a priest at the local church who runs a kindergarten, you know, on Saturdays or a playgroup or something like that. We've always had in our societies people who are, for one reason or the other, celibates. They're either monks or they're nuns or they're monastics of some kind. We have long tradition of this. And these people often live together in community, and they almost always take children in, either orphans or otherwise unwanted children, people, children that are born out of wedlock and are abandoned for one reason or another. So what I try to say in the book is, look, I'm not saying that you should just go join a commune and like give up, you know, full parental rights over your, your kids. But I am saying that there are some states in the United States which now allow for what's called de facto parenting. So if you're a divorced couple and let's say there's a step parent, a stepmother or a stepfather who's providing parental care, in many states, that person cannot become a legal guardian unless the biological parent gives up 
their parental rights. So some states are saying, why shouldn't children have three parents? Why not four parents? In LGBTQ plus communities where you might have a surrogate and an egg donor and maybe two sperm donors, a child might have four parents. Or in the case of mitochondrial replacement therapy, which is where you have an egg from one woman and then the mitochondria of that egg is from a second woman and then you have a sperm donor, you literally have a child that is biologically related to three parents. And our society doesn't really know what to do with a non-biparental model of care. And so there are legal interventions we could make. There are social interventions that we could make. We could really take godparenting, for instance, very seriously and think hard about identifying other adults that we like, presumably, hopefully, that will be a presence in our children's lives as they grow up. And I don't think anybody would say that that's a bad thing. They'll say that the full communal version of it is a bad thing, but that sort of opening of our child-rearing to a broader community of loving, caring adults is, first of all, we just have really good evidence now because of the pandemic that kids that didn't have multiple connections with adults in their lives are cognitively delayed. Right, So we, we know that kids have suffered from not being in an area where they're seeing other people's faces, strangers' faces, where they're interacting with other people in the world. It is not psychologically healthy for us to be so isolated and to have all of our love and care from just these two people. Because let's face it, as I'm sure you know, parenting a little kid or kids is a lot of work and it can be very, very, very exhausting and tiring. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to have this conversation in part because I confess to being too cynical sometimes and perhaps letting that cynicism masquerade as pragmatism. And this is an opportunity to push back on that. And you know, if I'm being honest, <laughs> and I try to be, I think some of my resistance comes from the fact that I really have inhaled the spirit of individualism in lots of ways at the core of this hyper-capitalist society. And that makes it hard to see beyond it. I like my space. Uh, I do like the things I have. I like my privacy. But also, the truth is, I have a wife and a son. I have a home. I have a wonderful job. I have a great employer that provides me generous benefits, so my family has good health care and all that sort of thing. I'm enormously lucky and I know it. And yet I struggle, like so many do in this society, with the isolation and the lack of connection and the lack of communal support. Caring for a child, even with all the privileges I have, uh, is so much harder than it ought to be. And I know it's even harder for people that don't have uh, some of the good fortunes that I have. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's something that people are really waking up to, right? How hard it is and how it doesn't have to be this hard. I mean, there's this great proverbial saying, it takes a village, right? What does that mean? It means that kids thrive in communities of loving, caring adults. But it also means, and I think this is really important, that adults thrive when 
they are supported in their parental caregiving roles. So the problem with our model of biparental care and of viewing the romantic relationship as the appropriate container for parenthood is that parenthood often places an enormous amount of pressure on the romantic relationship. So that it's not often, but I do agree with David Brooks in this thing that he wrote for The Atlantic a couple years back, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake, where he really shows us that in societies where our romantic relationships are so fragile and we have such a high divorce rate, the nuclear family and the way that we create this container for childbearing that is just the biparental model, if that biparental model cracks, which it does very often, we know that single parenthood is not optimal for children. It really creates an incredible amount of instability in the child's life. And so the thing about having this sort of more capacious idea of family, and again, as I said, for you, it might be having more grandparents around or, or having a set of godparents that are like old friends of yours and, you know, who you trust and you actually want to hang out with all the time. And so you don't mind seeing them or having them in your space and sharing your stuff. But the key thing here is that as parents, as adults, if we had more support for our caregiving roles. And and we're speaking specifically here by the way about childcare, but we could also expand this conversation out to talk about elder care, which is another big problem that we're going to be facing in this society. The loneliness and the isolation that we face in our society when we're raising our children in this sort of exclusive biparental mode means that we require a lot of emotional support and validation from our romantic partners. And the idea here is that if there were a wider network of people around us helping us with these responsibilities of caregiving, then we would also have other people to talk to. We would have other people who could help us with those responsibilities, but also be sympathetic with the burdens that we're under and provide emotional and social support. Because let's face it, I mean, again, anybody who's been a parent of, of a young child will know that it can put an incredible amount of strain on the romantic relationship. And so the idea is not to break the romantic relationship or to make it so that we're no longer having kids with our romantic partners, but it's just to say that, yes, the romantic relationship is a part of this effort of bringing new children into the world and raising them to adulthood and educating them and teaching them not only all of the intellectual and physical and moral and ethical skills that they're going to need to survive, but it's like it's a community effort. And, and when we sometimes fall down on the job, which I think all parents eventually do in one of those realms, right, we have people to lean on. We have people who can support us. And, you know, that's what it means to say it takes a village. It's not just good for the kids in the village. It's good for the adults, too. And that's what I'm really trying to get people to see. Is it possible to transform our social order without also transforming our private lives? That's coming up after one more quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. 
If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. The monogamy part of this is interesting to me. I don't think monogamy is a prison and I don't think it necessarily reduces women to instruments of reproduction as some of the thinkers I think in the book may, may argue, but I think you're right that it puts impossible pressure on partners to be everything to each other, to meet all the very emotional and physical and spiritual needs. And that's something one person can't really do. Um, not reliably, and it's not fair to expect anyone to do it, which I guess is a long-winded way of me getting to the question, monogamy is so bound up with the nuclear family, as we currently understand it. Does any serious move away from that model also imply a move away from monogamous relationships? No, and that's precisely because I believe that mating practices meaning monogamy, polyamory, polygamy, poly, you know, whatever, all of these different ways that we organize our romantic relationships with each other. And I also think it's important here to include celibates and platonic partners, because increasingly we are seeing, first of all, historically, there have always been populations of celibates in the world who just decide not to have romantic attachments. And increasingly today, we're also seeing the prevalence of platonic partners. So people who decide because they're really good friends, they get along, they buy a house together, they decide to raise a family, but they're not necessarily romantically involved. So I think that because we can separate our mating practices from our child-rearing practices, those two things can go together, but they don't necessarily have to, you can instantiate a kind of cooperative breeding model while still remaining monogamous to your primary pair-bonded partner. I do not think that monogamy is necessarily part of the problem here. I think the problem is the ways in which the nuclear family facilitates this intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege and the way that we have a sort of mating and we have this model whereby we live together communally when we're kids. We live with our parents and, you know, we might live in a house with brothers and sisters and other people, maybe aunts and uncles, maybe grandparents, who knows. Some of us go off to university where we live communally in dorms, right? And we eat in dining halls and we have this incredible kind of communal experience. A lot of people in their 20s, even if they don't go to college, they end up living in a flat, maybe with some flatmates because it's economically feasible to do so. And then at the later end of our lives, when we're, you know, over 55, if we've had children, they're grown, or we're just getting to a situation in our lives where we have maybe a little bit more affluence and we're more stable in our careers or whatever, we decide to move into like an over 55 community or, you know, some kind of senior living facility. And then we live communally again. 
The weird thing is that our model of this exclusive biparental mode of care for a biological offspring in this single family home, it just is for this period of our life of child rearing. When we actually need community the most is the time when we isolate ourselves from other families. And the reason that we isolate ourselves from other families is because that's the only way we could maintain the high levels of inequality that we have in our society. Because if we spent time with other people's children as much as we spend on our own, inevitably we're going to be more collective. And there's actually good anthropological evidence by people like Joe Henrik at Harvard You know, he's written this book about the weird, the Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, right? And so, you know, there's this way in which when you have extended kin networks, when you're kind of embedded in larger, let's say, extended families, those families tend to correlate. It doesn't necessarily mean it's causation, but they correlate with what he calls lower levels of economic development. And there are different ways of, you know, measuring that. But I think what's interesting about that is that that's actually recognizing that there's something about our society that creates and generates inequality. And then the conservative critique is going to be, but inequality is a good thing because it makes us work hard. It gives us advantages and it fuels economic development. And to that, I would say, okay, maybe that's true, but A, it's deleterious to the planet and it's not sustainable in the long run. Never-ending economic growth is going to just completely destroy the climate, and we're already seeing the beginnings of that now. But the second thing is it's leading to these really high and unsustainable levels of loneliness and isolation. So you have more and more people who are living alone. You have more and more people who are becoming extremely physically and mentally ill from the effects of this isolation. And we see plummeting levels of social trust. And in the long run, you know, if I was just to speak to the economists on this one and to take them at their word that somehow this economic inequality is good for us, well, it's also resulting in population decline. Birth rates in the industrial world are plummeting. And in the long run, if you have fewer consumers and fewer workers and fewer taxpayers, your economies are going to shrink. So this is a completely unsustainable model. And it is very much related to the way in which we raise our children to the exclusion of others. And we see other families and other children as competitors for scarce resources that we want for our own children. And if we changed our way of thinking, I argue that we would all be better off in the long run. We would be less isolated, we would reduce our carbon footprints, and we might even be able to do some of the work of reversing this precipitous decline in birth rates. My wife has always been interested in intentional communities. And I truly don't know how much of my resistance to it is is based in genuine skepticism and how much of it is just a reflection of my will to stay plugged into the matrix. <laughs> uh, maybe I don't even really want to know the answer to that question, but it does get at, I think, an important question that has to be asked. You know, I, I think it's true that many of the things we want, we never really chose to want them. They're the ones our culture has conditioned us to desire. And in a completely different culture, we might have very different wants. But even if that's true, I'm not sure it explains everything. And the question I'm constantly asking myself and other critics of capitalism is, if this system that we have is so empty and unfulfilling, 
in the end, then why is it so successful? Why aren't more people desperate for something else? Why aren't more people who have the means to live differently living differently? Yeah, and I don't think that perfection has to be the goal, right? I think there have been other economic systems in the past that felt as totalizing as ours has, right? You know, many of these utopian communities, when we're talking about, let's say, the Essenes in the Roman Empire, which existed from the second century BC to the first century AD, they were a group of Jews who were living in the Roman Empire who didn't believe in money. They didn't believe in holding slaves, which was pretty radical at that period of time. They believed in the principle of self-labor, and they lived communally. Many people believe that these this group of Essenes, they are the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they were a really interesting community of people that was attractive, and then they just got like completely squashed by the Romans. Uh, Similarly, the Bogomils were a group of, I call them celibate vegan anarchists in the book. Uh, They had a real critique of the Catholic Church, and they lived their life in a way that was really outside of the mainstream. They didn't believe in gender distinctions. They thought that the spirit was sexless, and so men and women could equally become what they called perfecti. And again, they immigrated from uh, what was then Bulgaria, like in the 8th, 10th century, into northern Italy. Finally, they settled in southern France, where they were called the Albigensians. And they were the first victims of the Inquisition. And in the 13th century, the Catholic Church launched the Albigensian Crusade and killed every last one of them. So so part of the answer here is that, yes, if there were successful um, utopian movements that were actually starting to gain adherence, and challenging the status quo in a really profound way, sometimes mainstream society goes out of its way to just utterly obliterate them in a very violent way. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind here. Because on the other hand, there's this other weird phenomenon, which is that 325 Christianity, so the Christians, right, that before what they call in the Catholic Church the Peace of Constantine, when Christianity became an official state religion, the pre-325 Christians were a pretty darn radical utopian group. There are passages in the Bible, like Acts 2 and Acts 4, where it's very clear that the apostles are living like communists. They're sharing their property in common. Whenever anybody has need, somebody goes and sells you know, a property or a house, and then they give all the money to the community, and they all live together. It's like, if you read those passages of the Bible, there is no way that you can not wonder whether or not, like, these early Christians were kind of a bunch of hippie communists in the most extreme way. And yet, when it became an official religion, it changed. It was co-opted by the mainstream. And now there are, what, 1.2 billion just Catholics, not including Christians, just Catholics around the world, from this tiny little utopian community of basically weirdos in the Roman Empire who were very heavily persecuted, it became this huge ideology, which ironically is now very conservative. So there's this way in which I think that you have to keep your mind open to the idea that sometimes things that start out as very utopian propositions, like no-fault divorce, which was something that the Sansimonians in France wanted in the aftermath of the French Revolution— It was the most ridiculous demand that anybody could imagine. And yet now that thing is just part of our daily lives. So what I'm saying is 
There are always going to be people that are out there on the margins, that utopian 1%, the liminal people in society who are just sort of pushing the boundaries of what we think is the normal or not normal way of being in the world. And because most of us are not going to be out there, we are happy with the status quo. And I think that we are very adaptable, creative, and flexible people, humans as a species. That can be a good thing. But it can also mean that we put up with a lot of crap for a really, really long time. But here's the key thing that I want to say. Feudalism lasted for a really, really long time. Slavery lasted for a really, really, really long time. These were economic systems which people felt were very unjust, and yet they didn't really challenge them. The Roman Empire, hell, that thing lasted for a really, really long time. And then one day, they just end. For one reason or the other, if we know anything about human history, we know that things change. And we also know that things can change on a dime, right? And I think that one of the things that these utopian communities are so good at seeing is just precisely how contingent the future is and how much agency we all have to kind of live prefiguratively the future that we want to see. Most of us don't do that. And that's why systems like capitalism or feudalism or slavery end up lasting as long as they do. But if we know anything, right, about history, it's that things are constantly changing. And there could be exogenous reasons why things change. There could be, you know, reasons that are internal to the society. I'm not making any kind of claims about revolution or reform, or I'm not talking about like the seeds of, you know, capitalism and contains the seeds of its own destruction or any of that kind of stuff. All I'm saying is that historically speaking, things change. And sometimes they change really radically. And we're already starting to see what some of those changes are going to be in the 21st century. And I think there are tools, there are ideas, there are ways of thinking and ways of being in the world that we could take from these utopian communities, bits and pieces that we can repurpose in order to make ourselves prepared for the changes that are inevitably going to come. I may have more conservative instincts than you that make me wary, maybe too wary of tinkering too radically with the social order. But I do want to say as clearly as I can that I think I think we would agree for sure that a society of people that have lost the capacity to imagine an alternative order is already on the way to decadence and extinction. And that makes exercises like this one, exercises in political imagination, essential. And I love that Oscar Wilde quote in the book, that a map of the world that doesn't include utopia isn't even worth glancing at. And your book is a wonderful glance at just that. And hopefully this conversation was too. Once again, the book is called Everyday Utopia, what 2000 years of wild experiments can teach us about the good life. Kristen Godsey, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Sean. This was a real pleasure to have this conversation. Erica Wong engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. Serena Solin is our fact checker and A.M. Hall is the boss. Special thanks to Caitlin Boguki. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at Vox.com. If you liked this episode, share the link with your friends on all these socials. That stuff really helps. And remember, new episodes of the gray area now drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe.